What's in a name? You know, this is one of Shakespeare's most famous quotes from Romeo and Juliet. Uh, The tale of two lovers from two warring families. And despite Romeo's family name, Juliet affirms her love for him, stating, What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. What's in a name? Well, I tell you what calls to mind for me is the beginning of the school years when my wife Kathy was teaching kindergarten. Because at the beginning of the school year, my job was to print out all of the labels for the kids in her kindergarten class. And as I would look through that roster each year, I would always look at those names and I would wonder, what are the stories behind these names? Uh, Why were these kids given these certain names? And especially some of them where when I would look at the, should I say, unusual spelling of some of those names, I always wondered, what is the story there? What is in a name? I think the setter bows, as we just saw this morning in their dedication, would say that, you know, there is much in a name. Uh, Kathy and I would say the same thing. We raised four kids, uh, raising three daughters and one son. And we named each of the kids using family names, either in their first name or in their middle name. And uh, before we had kids, Kathy and I had this ongoing discussion where early on I let her know that if and when we have a son, I would like to name him Harold John Gordon III. You see, I am Harold John Gordon II. I was named after my paternal grandfather, who I just greatly loved and adored. And it wasn't so much that I wanted to name Johnny after me as much as I wanted to name him after our, my grandfather. And so Kathy and I had this ongoing discussion, and of course with the first three girls, it wasn't an issue. And lo and behold, the Lord gave us a son. And I remember so clearly the day that I went to the hospital to check uh, Kathy and our son out of the hospital is I had to go by the cashier's office and, of course, pay whatever was due, but they will not allow you to take that child home unless there is a name. And so Kathy was up in her hospital room waiting for me to come up and and take her uh, with our, our son, And they're in the cashier's office after I had paid, and they said, and the child's name? And the first name that came to my mind was Harold John Gordon III. (laughs) And I thought we had settled on that, and well, in fact, (laughs) we hadn't. As a matter of fact, we're still talking about it to this day. (laughs) 
But to us, yes, there is much in a name. And today we're going to look at some of the names of Jesus. And we're going to see what these names reveal about who he really is. So I invite you to follow along with me in Luke's Gospel, chapter 20, and I'll begin reading in verse 41. Then he said to them, How is it that they say the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, David calls him Lord, and how is he his son? And while all the people were listening, he said to the disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets, who devour widows' houses and for appearances' sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Setting the context, Jesus is in the final week of his earthly ministry there in Jerusalem. The Jewish religious leaders continue to challenge him and his authority. Specifically, they question him with the intent of trapping him in his answers to their questions. And their frustration in failing to do so is evidenced in the final verse of last week's passage in verse 40 where we read that they did not have courage to question him any longer about anything. But we see here today that Jesus is turning the tables on his detractors. Instead of them asking him the questions, Jesus now asks them a question. And the purpose of his question was to correct the popularly held ideas of the Messiah. Popular opinion held that the Messiah would usher in this golden age whereby Israel would attain world prominence, an opinion that was rooted in a quest for political power. His question prompts a Christology or a study of the doctrine of Christ, of the true identity of the Messiah. And had these there before him understood the implication, they would have bowed down right then and there and worshiped him. And yet they did not. And in his question to those assembled there within the hearing of his voice, he asks his rhetorical question. His question focused on the Messiah. Ultimately, it was a question that focused on him. 
Read with me in verse 41. Again, Jesus' rhetorical question to them. How is it that they say the Christ is David's son? Now, the question of the Messiah was perhaps the central issue of controversy throughout Jesus' earthly ministry. And this was possibly the most familiar subject of their theology, those who were assembled there before him. The Jewish religious leaders there uh, refused to acknowledge Jesus' claims, and especially uh, following his um, crucifixion, where they uh, said that after the crucifixion and his death, that that totally invalidated the possibility of him being the Messiah. And yet, in reality, it was the resurrection that, in fact, confirmed that he was and is indeed the Messiah. And by raising this rhetorical question, this single rhetorical question to them, Jesus then proves through the Old Testament that the Messiah must be both man and God. And through this messianic prophecy or this messianic promise, he implicitly proves that he himself is qualified to be the Messiah. Again, reading in the text, verse 42, for David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Note here that Jesus uses the word of God to make his point. I think that you and I would do well to do the same as you and I engage our culture our society, our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers in the reality of who Jesus is. Uh, Jesus does so in using the Word of God. Specifically, he quotes from Psalm 110. And Jesus knows that in doing so, that his hearers would have the understanding that Psalm 110 is, in fact, a messianic psalm. David is the author of the psalm. And as the author, he is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he writes this psalm. And he sees an oracle or a vision that God has granted to him. As he hears this conversation in this vision, um, in heaven of the Lord, God the Father, saying to the Lord, the Messiah, to sit at my right hand. Now, the right hand would have been known and understood to be a symbol of power and of might, and hence the same for the position of one who would be seated there at the right hand of God. 
And the phrase where he says, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, it refers to that time hence, future in the end times, where Roger spoke of last week, when the Messiah will return to the earth to establish his millennial kingdom, to sit on David's throne, the end of which will he vanquish his foes. It's a picture, or the footstool for his feet is a picture of a conquering king with his foot on the neck of his conquered enemy. It's a picture of complete subjugation. One of the things that is said and noted about this passage that I found myself is it's a difficult theological concept to understand what Jesus is saying, what David is saying here in this passage, Psalm 110, that Luke quotes or that Jesus quotes. And so to help us better understand this passage, I'm going to employ the use of a syllogism. And I know your stomach may be turning from high school English, bringing back bad bad memories or perhaps good memories, where we learned that a syllogism is a logical argument that is composed of a major premise, a minor premise, and a conclusion. And again, so though this is somewhat difficult to grasp as a theological concept, I think that the argument or the vision, the understanding could go something like this. The major premise is this. The Messiah is David's Lord because he is the eternal God. Minor premise, the Messiah is David's son because he is a descendant of David. The conclusion can be stated as the Messiah is therefore both David's Lord and David's son. And the implication here is that the Messiah would be both man, David's son, and God, David's Lord. This understanding was contrary to that of the Old Testament Jew who anticipated that the Messiah solely as being a human king sent from God. To understand Jesus is to understand the names associated with Jesus. And we see three of those names here in this passage in Luke 20 that Luke uses. And I would like to spend some time looking at these names. What's in a name? Well, we see the first name here, the title of the Christ. It's a name that refers to the Jewish Messiah. 
And again, I emphasize the Jewish Messiah because in that day, in an age's sense, there have been many and numerous false messiahs. We see here that the Old Testament Jew would have understood this name as referring to God's long-promised anointed one. The Christ is an all-important title for understanding the work of God through Jesus. As a matter of fact, Luke uses this title 12 times in his gospel, and he also uses it 25 times as he wrote the book of Acts. It's from this title that we get the name Christians, where over in Acts 11.26 in Antioch, that they were first referred to as Christians or literally as little Christ. Wouldn't that be a compliment to you for somebody to refer to you as a little Christ? That you act so much like Jesus Christ that they see you as so intertwined and so uh, obedient in his lordship in, in your life that you would be referred to as a little Christ. The title refers to the Messiah, the one whom God had promised centuries previously. The second name that we see that is used here in Luke's passage, Son of David, Son of David is a title referring to a descendant of David or someone who would be born into the royal lineage of David. And both Mary and Joseph, we know from the genealogies, were in fact descendants of David, uh, making Jesus a descendant of David both legal in the legal sense, as well as in the familial sense. And Luke mentions 13 times in his gospel a reference to the son of David and 11 times in the book of Acts. Luke's use of the title son of David is enough in and of itself to show the significance that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. This psalm that Jesus quotes, this messianic prophetic psalm, is sourced or has a direct correlation with the Davidic covenant. Now, what is the Davidic covenant? The Davidic covenant is God's promise to David through Nathan the prophet. And we can find it over in 2 Samuel in verse 7. It's an unconditional covenant that God makes with David and the nation of Israel. And God promises David and Israel that the Messiah would come, in fact, through the lineage of David and that he would establish his kingdom forever. 
The Davidic covenant is unconditional because God did not place any conditions of obedience on its fulfillment. In other words, that the Davidic covenant was not dependent on David's obedience nor the obedience of the nation of Israel. And there's two key promises here in this Davidic covenant. One is that God reaffirms the promise, the land promise that he made in the first two covenants, the Abrahamic and the Mosaic covenants. Second of all, God promises that David's descendant or seed will succeed as the king of Israel and that David's throne will be established forever. Over in 2 Samuel, let me read in verse 7, verses 10 through 13. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendants after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Notice that in the covenant, he uses various terms, house, promising a dynasty of David's lineage, kingdom, referring to a people who would be governed by a king, throne, emphasizing the authority of the king's rule, forever, emphasizing the eternal and unconditional nature of this promise to David and to Israel. The third name that we see used here in Luke's gospel is Lord. And though translated as the same English name, David uses two different Hebrew names for God, Yahweh and Adonai. Yahweh is the Hebrew sacred name for God. Adonai means master or ruler. And so verse 42 is to be read as the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adonai, and is to be understood as the Lord, God the Father, said to my Lord, the Messiah. Again, the Old Testament Jew would not have understood the fact that this Messiah would be both God and man. You know, the Lord, the title Lord, uh, Luke uses it most frequently for Jesus than any of the other titles. As a matter of fact, he uses this title a total of 103 times in Luke's gospel. 
He uses it 107 times as he wrote the book of Acts. And the exalted meaning of this title is evidenced in the early Christian community using this title of Lord for both God the Father and Jesus. But then Jesus gives a warning. He gives a warning to those who are assembled there before him, among which there would have been scribes and Pharisees and those people who had gathered around to hear the interaction. He says in verse 45, While all the people were listening, he said to the disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets, who devour widows' houses and for appearance's sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Beware of the scribes. It's a warning to Jesus' followers of the Jewish religious leaders of his day. He describes them as being those who like to walk around in long robes, love respectful greetings in the marketplace, love chief seats, not cheap seats, the chief seats in the synagogues and love places of honor at banquets. You know, Jesus is here condemning the ostentatious display of the Jewish religious leaders there within his hearing because the motivation of their religious practice was more for the applause of men rather than out of a sincere worship of God. They were also going about their religious practices for personal gain, hence devouring widows' houses where they would lend money to these vulnerable widows, charging exorbitant interest, knowing that they would eventually repossess the houses from them. For appearance sake, offering long prayers, I'll be honest with you that every time I come up here to pray before the congregation, that thought crosses my mind. Am I praying for the applause of men or am I praying to an audience of one in sincere worship? These were learned men and they should have known better. And we should know better because we are learned people. So what's in a name? What's in a name? A rose by any other name may smell as sweet. Not so with Jesus. Why? Because the names of Jesus tell us 
who he really is. Listen with me. Matthew 1, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, being Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus, meaning God saves. Or where Paul in Philippians chapter 2 says, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now love in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, where Peter, Peter is preaching there. You know, the amazing thing is that subsequent to the resurrection, when the detractors thought that the question of Jesus' Messiahship was over. That in fact, the resurrection validated his Messiahship. Listen to what Peter says. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and he spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until... I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Perhaps you're sitting here saying today, so what? So what does this have to do with me? Well, Peter had some like that there in his audience. And see, in fact, all of us have been there. Peter concludes saying, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? 
Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Repent. Repent. That is our only proper response. Repenting is not only a change of mind, but it's a change of action as well. As a matter of fact, even beyond that, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. He's a new creation. To those who are sitting here with the so what, I call to mind what Paul says in Romans 10.9, that if you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You see, it's not about what you do for God. It's all about what God has already done for you through Jesus Christ. Why? Why? And I close with the words of Leon Morris. The one who did what he did, taught what he taught, and lived as he lived, was indeed the Christ of God. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we are so grateful for your word and the revelation of that word in the person of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And Father, as we consider today the significance of what's in His name, to realize, Father, the implication that those names have on each and every one of us seated here today. Father, we pray that we would grow in our love and our devotion to you, and pray too for those who sit here and know him not, that today would indeed be the day of salvation, confessing with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believing in their heart that you raised him from the dead. In the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.